take a Bible and turn to Psalm 31, and I do mean Psalm 31, and the reason I say that is because when I was in college back in ancient history, and before there were cell phones, and when long distance was expensive, and when letter writing was the main form of communication across the miles, and I was 400 miles away from my family. I was in St. Paul, Minnesota. My family was just outside of Omaha, Nebraska, and I was a new believer, and so I would write letters to my family, typically once a week or so, and my mom was always real good about writing back, and as a new believer, I was seeking to encourage my parents in the Lord, and um, so at one of my letters, typical practice was at the closing of the letter to include a scripture reference, just the verse reference, the address, and have them look it up and be encouraged by looking at God's word. And so I had sent to my mom and to my dad Psalm 30, 11 and 12, which says this, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. I wanted to encourage my parents and to help them to be glad in the Lord and to rejoice and to worship. And my mom accidentally read Psalm 31, verse 11 and 12, which says this, because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. And so my mom wrote back to me and said, what was that scripture reference about? <laughs> today I do mean Psalm 31. We're looking at Psalm 31 today, and so I encourage you to turn in a Bible to Psalm 31, and we'll read from there. I'll read aloud, and you can follow along. This is a psalm of David with the instruction to the choir masters who it was to be sung, it was to be used in worship. Hear now God's word. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand... I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress my eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. For those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. 
But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servants. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage all you who wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. In his commentary on Psalm 31, James Boyce points out that this is one of the most difficult psalms to outline because the structure is such that it goes back and forth between joy and sorrow, between one end of the spectrum and the other. And yet throughout There is a recurring theme. It's a theme of shame. It begins there in verse 1. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Shame is an ever-present reality in a fallen world. Some of you may remember seventh grade. Likely not a pleasant memory for a lot because seventh grade is a time that can be very, very painful. I remember a particular incident from seventh grade. I had written a note to another boy in my class, and the note was very unkind to a particular girl in our class. She'd never been mean to me. She'd never mistreated me in any way, but in my unconverted, rebellious heart, I had venom stored up. And I vented it that day towards this girl. And as that note was being passed to this other boy in my class, Mrs. Wolf, the teacher, saw and intercepted it. That was a painful moment in my life because I didn't know what was going to happen next. I was afraid she was going to read it in front of the entire class. By God's mercy, she she did not because it certainly would have brought additional pain to this girl as well as great shame and embarrassment to me. But in that experience, I felt like everyone in the class knew what I had written. I felt like everyone was looking at me. Every eye was focused on me. Shame is a universal and an ever-present reality in a fallen world. Many books have been written on the topic of shame. In 2016, there were three books within a matter of weeks that were all published by different Christian publishers, different authors, all with the same title, Unashamed. Around the same time, a few weeks difference in time, there was another book that was written, again, dealing with shame. 
This is a universal experience. Ed Welch wrote a book called Shame Interrupted back in 2016, and um, more recently, Dr. Kurt Thompson wrote a book called The Soul of Shame. Shame is a subject that impacts all of us. And shame is the experience of being publicly exposed to humiliation. When I was in seminary, I was in Pasadena, California, and some friends invited me to go to a baseball game at Dodger Stadium. And at the time, Diamond Vision was a new thing. There was a huge screen out in the outfield, and they would pan the, the crowd, and you might show up on the screen out in the outfield. And you hoped that you weren't doing something embarrassing, like spilling your drink or having mustard on your face if you suddenly appeared on the screen. But many of us, I think, wrestle with the thought the perception that people can see all the secret intents and purposes of our life. They can see all of our secret sins and that they're going to show up on this huge screen and we're going to be terribly ashamed. That people will know all the things that I've spoken in secret, all the things I've done in the darkness, all the things that I am so ashamed of, that people will know them. Well, the fact is, people don't, but God does. And God has done something about our shame. King David was a man who was guilty of adultery and murder. Scripture records that in the spring of the year when kings go out to war, David remained in Jerusalem. And while he was there, he was out walking on his rooftop and he observed a woman bathing on another rooftop. And because he was the king, he had her brought to him. She became pregnant. And so he brought her husband back from the war and tried to get him to go to his wife so that it might not look like the king had gotten her pregnant. But her husband was more righteous than the king at that time, and he refused. And so the King David sent him out to battle, put him at the front, told the troops to draw back so that he would be killed. King David was guilty of adultery and murder. He knew the shame of having our sin exposed. And so David prayed, let me never be put to shame in verse 1. Again in verse 17, oh Lord, let me not be put to shame. He didn't want to be exposed as a fraud. He didn't want to be exposed for his sinfulness he didn't want to be held up to public scorn because he had trusted in a God who would not be reliable. Shame, however, was not always a part of the human experience. When Adam and Eve, the first humans, were created by God, it says the man and woman were naked and unashamed. There was no shame at the beginning of creation, God created in a, such a good and perfect way that there was no shame. We can't imagine what that would be like. And when it says they were naked and unashamed, it's not just talking about physical nakedness, although it certainly means that, but it means the transparency about who we are and what our deepest joys and fears are. They were naked and unashamed. But when sin entered the world, when the enemy came with his persuasive words, sowing doubt into their minds. Did God really say? 
They began to believe lies and they acted on those lies and so they took from the tree that was forbidden to them and immediately their eyes became open and they were aware that they were naked and they felt shame and they tried to cover their shame and in their pathetic attempt they took fig leaves and tried to sew them together to cover their nakedness and their shame and God spoke to them and asked them asked Adam where are you God knew God knew where Adam was he wasn't asking for information he was revealing to Adam that Adam had turned his back on God that he'd turned away from God and All of us ever since have done the same thing. And so God had mercy upon them and he covered them with skins, presumably sacrificed an animal to portray what would eventually happen to cover shame once and for all in the death of Christ on the cross. So shame was not always part of our human experience. Shame is the result of sin, both our own sin and the sin of others. In verse 10, David says, my life is spent from grief, my soul and my body, my life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing, my strength fails because of my iniquity. So he was acknowledging shame was a result of his own sin. We think about the things that we've done and said and thought and run after, and we feel shame, and rightly so. We feel shame about being so angry with children, our children, with, about saying hateful things to a spouse, about making foolish financial decisions that have brought painful circumstances on ourselves and our family and those we love. We feel shame over wasting time on trivial things. When you come to the end of the night and you realize, did I just spend that much time doing that? We feel shame that we don't read the Bible or pray enough, that we haven't been diligent enough about sharing the gospel with our neighbors. And we hear the words of Psalm 31, and this is our story. David is crying out in distress and asking God, pleading with God, let me never be put to shame. Let me not be put to shame. The words of shame come to us differently like you don't measure up you need to prove yourself you're not working hard enough you don't belong here you're an outsider you're not from here are you you should do more you should be more you're just not enough or you're too much and so we hear these voices of shame like The words the serpent spoke, these voices impact our lives in very deep ways. And so we respond by seeking to perform, seeking to please, seeking to be perfect, to prove ourselves. Because we believe the enemy's lie that if you really knew the truth about me, you wouldn't love me. You may love who you think I am, but if you really knew who I am, you wouldn't want anything to do with me. I should be so much better. I keep doing the same thing over and over again. And how is it that God puts up with me? How will others continue to be my friends or to stay with me? And in our shame, we 
think that we're alone. It's just me. I'm the only one who feels this way. Everybody else looks so much better. They've all got it together. We think that we're the only one that's hearing that voice, but that's not the case. Shame may be the result of our own sin, as David said. My iniquity, it's because of my iniquity. There are some who glory in their shame. Philippians 3.19, Paul said, I tell you with tears that there are some who live as enemies of the cross of Christ, that they glory in their shame. You don't have to look far in the world today to see people glorying in their shame, shameful things, and they're glorying them. Let's be proud about this act of sin. People are finding glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. That's what it means to be shameless when we don't feel shame for things we ought to be ashamed of. But sometimes... Shame stems from the sin of others done to us. Verse 15, my times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. There are people who oppose us and come against us. And sometimes shame is connected to the sin of others that has been done to us. Verse 18, Let the lying lips be mute. Those lips that speak about you and say, you'll never amount to anything. You'll never be any different. How could God forgive you? You think God would actually forgive you? No way. There's no way you could be forgiven. Those are lying messages out of the pit of hell. Shame comes both from our own sin and from the sin of others that has been addressed to us. Some experience illegitimate shame. Think about a woman who's been assaulted and she bears shame on a regular basis because of what was done to her, what was taken from her. It's illegitimate shame. But then there are others who ought to be ashamed and are not. That's shameless. Shame is experienced in the context of relationships. We see this In verses 11 and 12, especially to my neighbors, I'm an object of dread, and to my acquaintances, those who see me in the street flee from me. So we've got, because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach. There's adversaries, there's neighbors to whom I've become an object of dread, there's my acquaintances, those who see me in the streets flee from me. So sometimes our shame is because of our adversaries, or it's in relation to our adversaries, those who oppose us. Sometimes it's those who are close to us, our neighbors, those who are closest to us, our family. They let us down, and we feel ashamed. Our acquaintances, those who know us, but maybe not all that well. And then strangers, people who see me in the street. And we think that everybody's looking at me. Everybody sees the brokenness in my life, and I can't bear it. But one word of help in that situation is, it's not about you. The people that you think are looking at you, they probably aren't. They're so consumed with their own life, they don't have time to be concerned about your life. But more importantly than that, God has addressed our shame. And shame drives addiction when we feel 
shame for what we've done. It sometimes drives us to medicate ourselves in some way, some sinful way, some excessive way. But shame also is the result of addiction. If you've given in to sin and temptation and addiction, you feel shame and you think, oh God, I did it again. I, I didn't mean to. I don't want to. So shame drives addiction. It results from addiction. And shame even often leads to acts of aggression. The first church I pastored was up in the city of Delaware, on the west side of Delaware, Ohio. And in 1989, there were a string of church arsons in Delaware County. And while I was pastoring that church, my family had been on vacation. We came back on a Friday night. We were getting ready to leave Saturday morning to go up to Lake Erie for another few days of vacation. Woke up to a phone call that morning saying the church is on fire. Got in the car, drove to the church building just in time to see the bell and the steeple collapse and hit the dirt with a thud, a sickening thud. This church arson had been the work of a couple of young men, one who was a leader and another one was a follower. And in part of the pre-sentencing or pre-trial requirements of the court, he was to write a letter to those who had been impacted by his crimes. And so he wrote and he explained that he had gotten his girlfriend pregnant and that she had had an abortion and He was ashamed about that, that he had contributed to the taking of an innocent life. And he said in the night he would hear babies crying and screaming in pain, and that set him over the edge. It didn't excuse what he did, but it was part of what drove what he did. And so in the news yesterday, we hear of a mass shooting in El Paso, Texas, and overnight a mass shooting in Dayton, Ohio, and I would guess that the people involved in those were struggling with shame. That certainly does not excuse what they did, but it may explain and give a window into what was going on. When we're so overcome with shame, it can result in horrendous actions. Desperate people do desperate things. Shame is not the same as guilt. Guilt is focused on what we have done. If we have done something wrong, if we've committed wrongdoing, we're guilty. That's an objective reality. Shame is more subjective. It's the feeling of humiliation. And it's often focused on who we are. Not just what we've done, but who we are. But we need to recognize that shame is a necessary part of being reconciled to God because until we feel shame for our sin, until we feel the weight of being separated from God and having not only sinned but being a sinner who is separated from a holy God, until we feel that shame, we won't turn to God in repentance. We won't turn away from self-reliance and turn to God in faithful reliance upon him. Thomas Watson said this, without shame, there is no real repentance. And therefore, J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, said, pray for the grace to be ashamed. 
Not to stay there, not to camp there or to live there, but pray for the grace to be ashamed, to feel shame for our sinfulness so that we will cry out to God for mercy. The opposite of shame is righteousness. Look at verse 1. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. So what do we need in our shame? Do we need someone to come along and say, oh, what you really need is to feel better about yourself. You're not that bad of a person. It's not that bad what you've done. That won't heal us. That won't help us. What we need is what only Jesus can give. We need his righteousness, his perfect righteousness to cover our sin and our shame. And that's what God does through the cross of Christ. He takes the perfect righteousness of Christ and covers us with it. So that when God looks at us, he no longer sees our sinfulness, but he sees the righteousness of Christ that is placed on us. It's imputed to us. It's credited to us. It's reckoned to us by faith when we trust in Christ. So we need to pray for the grace to be ashamed. We need to pray for God to have mercy upon us and to cover us with the righteousness of Christ. We need what only Jesus can give us. When you and I leave here today, we will all hide. We'll seek to hide We seek to hide from others sometimes because we don't want them to see into our lives and see what's really there, what's really in our hearts, what we really struggle with. We don't want our brokenness to be exposed. And so we hide and we will continue to hide. But the question is, where will you hide? You can either hide from God and from others, attempt to do that, Or you can hide in Christ. There are some great hymns of the faith. Hiding in thee, hiding in thee, O blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. We will all be hiding for the rest of our lives. We'll either be hiding, attempting to hide from God, which is futile, Attempting to hide from others, not allow them to see what's going on in our lives. Or we can hide in God, in Christ. The good news is that on the cross, Jesus bore the shame of our sin. And so you can either bear your own shame or you can allow Jesus to bear it for you. Shame must be carried, it must be borne. And we will either bear it ourselves in this life and for eternity, or we can transfer our shame in faith, by faith, onto Jesus Christ who will bear it for us that we no longer need to bear it. God offers the perfect righteousness of Christ to cover our shame. We've seen in this text the words that bring shame, the accusations from the enemy And so we need words to lead us out of shame. We need to learn a new language. 
when I was in high school, I took a couple years of Spanish. And I did really well in the vocabulary tests and all of that, but there were no Spanish speakers in my neighborhood or area at that time. So I never had an opportunity to speak it, never had an opportunity to practice it. So I had some head knowledge, but was not comfortable at all trying to speak it. When I was in seminary, I took a class on language and culture learning. It was focused on helping people who might be involved in missions to learn a new language and learn a new culture. They said, okay, you're in the Los Angeles area here. Pick any language you want because you can find somebody who will speak that language somewhere in the area. So I picked Japanese. And there was a student, fellow student at seminary who was Japanese. And so he would help me to learn Japanese. He would record on an endless loop cassette. Yeah, cassette. Some of you don't know what that is. You can ask it, look it up on Google. He would record on this endless loop cassette phrases in Japanese like, hi, my name is Rick. I'm learning Japanese. This is all the Japanese I know. <laughs> and I practiced over and over and over. And then I'd go down to Little Tokyo and I'd go into a store in Little Tokyo and I'd go and say, konnichiwa, what I am on Riku Hi, my name is Rick. This is all the Japanese I know. I'm learning Japanese. And I was fluent in Japanese. I was confident to speak it because I had learned it that way. But we need to learn a new language, the language of faith, rather than the language of shame. And we see the language of faith in this psalm. You are my rock, verse 3. You are my fortress. We need to remind ourselves, we need to speak this language. Into your hand I commit my spirit. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. That is a rich word. It's the word um, that's in the, the Jesus Storybook Bible written by Sally uh, Lloyd-Jones. And she, you, she defines that word in such a wonderful way. It's, she calls it the... Uh, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's what God's steadfast love is. We need to learn to speak that language. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. We need to speak this new language in order to be freed from shame. So we need to not hide in our shame to seek to hide from God or from others, but to hide in Christ. And the way that we do that is by speaking this new language, by learning this language of faith, by allowing God in his grace to teach us this new language so that we'll be fluent in the language of faith. There are a couple of stories of fishing experiences in the New Testament. Both of them, in both of them, Peter plays a prominent role. One is in Luke 5, the other is in John 21. In both stories, you've got professional fishermen who really know what they're doing. They fish all night long and they've caught nothing, zero zip nada. And they're exhausted, they're worn out, they're done. They're pulling in their nets. They're not gonna fish anymore. And in both stories, someone who really doesn't know a lot about fishing comes to them with counterintuitive instruction. It's Jesus, and he says, go out into the deep water and let your nets down there. Well, anybody who's familiar with fishing knows that's not where the fish are. They're too vulnerable there. They like to be more in the shallow water. Nevertheless, they do that. They 
have a great catch. And the other time in John 21, throw your nets on the right side. See, that's the problem. They were on the wrong side of the boat. They toss your nets on the right side. They let their nets down again, and the nets fill with so many fish, they begin to tear, the boats begin to sink. And in both stories, Peter takes this prominent role. In the first one, he's ashamed. He says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. I can't bear to be in your presence. I'm ashamed to be in your presence. But then in the second story, Peter is stripped down and he starts to run to Jesus. He's swimming as fast as he can to get to Jesus. When we leave here today, we will either seek to hide from God and from others or we can hide ourselves in God, in Christ and have our shame covered and borne. Let Jesus Christ bear it for us. I pray that by God's grace, that we will be enabled to do the latter, that we will let him bear our sin and our shame, that we will hide ourselves in him, that we will find ourselves made strong in him. The last verse of this psalm says, Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. And that can sound like an overwhelming burden, especially to someone who's ashamed you're telling me I've got to be more, I've got to be strong, and I've got to take, be courageous. I just can't do that. That's not what it's saying. This is not throwing broken people back upon themselves. It's throwing them upon the rock of Jesus Christ. Take heart, take courage. Let your heart take courage because God has done something to deal with your shame. Now, we might like our shame to be gone in an instant. At the beginning of this psalm, we see, incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily in verse 2. But then in verse 24, let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. See, we want a simple fix to shame. We want it to be gone like that. But shame is something we will address for the rest of our lives. Kurt Thompson, in his book on shame, said that it, shame must be starved to death. It can't be killed with a guillotine. You can't just chop off its head. It must be starved to death. And so over our lifetime, we seek God's grace to speak the language of faith, to allow Jesus to cover our shame so that we will run to him and not from him. May God enable us to do that. Let's pray. Lord, before you, all of our lives are exposed. There are no secrets from you, even though we may try to hide in the darkness. You see and know everything about us. And we thank you for your great mercy to us in Christ, that he bore our shame on the cross, that he has covered our shame with his perfect righteousness. And so, Lord, allow us to lean upon him fully to rely upon you to rest in the righteousness of Christ to learn this new language of faith that exults in who you are the rock of our salvation the one who has showered upon us steadfast unstoppable never giving up love Lord may that be our confession of faith this day and every day thank you that in our weakness 
you are strong, that we can be strong in you as we wait upon the Lord. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.